My name is Seth McCoy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I, uh, next 30 minutes, we're going to have a chat. And I want you to know, I hope to see big improvements and more satisfaction from all of us because of this sermon, all right? Uh, seriously, though, would you join me in a prayer? Uh, let's ask God to lead us. He's a great leader, okay? Lord, we surrender these next 30 minutes to you. Uh, and it's amazing what you can do with small things. 30 minutes can change a life. Uh, and I pray that 30 minutes would change my life. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, I'm going to tell you about a phrase that you never hear in the Bible. Do you know nowhere in the Bible do you ever hear someone using the phrase, where do you go to church? <laughs> now, one of the reasons why is because the writers of the New Testament, that would sound a little bit ridiculous. Uh, because in the early days of the church, the church didn't have any buildings. The church wasn't a building. The church was people. So to sort of make the transition about how ridiculous it might sound for someone to say, like, where do you go to church? Um, imagine this. Imagine if I walked into the nursery um, uh, of, a, of a little kid, right, a little baby, and I looked at the crib, and I said about the crib, I said, that is a beautiful baby. That would be ridiculous because the baby's not a crib. The crib is just a place that the baby goes to rest and recharge so that the baby can go back out into the world. The baby belongs in the world. The baby loves the world. I know all of my babies love the world. I had one baby who hated the crib so much that every morning when we came in, we would find shards of wood on the carpet. He was trying to eat his way out of the crib. <laughs> he loved the world, right? Um, the church is not a building, it's a people. Just like a baby is not a crib, the crib is where we go to rest and recharge. The church is where we go to rest and refuel so that we can go back out into the world. Welcome to the crib this morning, okay? There's another phrase that you don't hear in the Bible, um, and that other phrase is, how did church go today? Now, I know my family often gathered at the local sort of diner. We had a pretty regular discipline about that. And we would talk about how did church go today? And by that, we meant, how did you like the songs today? Were they like your style? Were you into it? How did that guy giving the sermon do? Was he funny? Was he poignant? Did he say it in just the right way? How was church today? How did the worship go? How did the sermon go? By the way, how's the sermon going so far? <laughs> Kidding, right? It'd be interesting, though, if we could get inside of God's mind. How does God think the church is doing today? And I don't think what he means is, how did the music go? Did I like it? How's Seth doing at that sermon? Struggling? <laughs> I don't think that's what God looks at. Because when God sees a church, he sees a body, not a building. He sees a people and not a service. That's why we're in this series this weekend, uh, this is the, the fourth of five parts in the series that we've called Flesh and Blood because we are the flesh and blood of Christ. The bones and the muscles and the tissue and the organs, we together form a body, a body that's not meant for the crib, but it's meant for the world. A body that Jesus has a vision that there would be no walls between us because I want you to know God has a vision for the world a world without walls. And inside of these walls, he's looking for a people with lives without walls. So this series is called Flesh and Blood about conflict transformation. This sermon 
is called a life without walls because it's God's hope for you and it's God's hope for me. It's God's hope for his people and his vision for the world. But then we have to stop and ask a question. Why do people build walls in their lives? Now, I don't know why you build walls in your life, but I do know myself pretty well. I'm a heck of a wall builder, and I build walls when I don't feel safe. When someone has hurt me, I don't like to get hurt twice. Do you? And so I build a wall. It's a real natural thing to do. One of the most amazing wall builders that we find in the Bible is a character that I talked about about a month and a half ago. He's one of my favorites. His name is Jacob. Some of you be, will be familiar with the story. Some of you might have heard that name for the first time. So let me just give you a quick overview about Jacob's birth. Jacob was born physically holding on to his older brother's heel. And one of the reasons why is because in Hebrew culture, the firstborn sons got two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger got one-third. And Jacob didn't want a third. He wanted two-thirds. That's not like any of us, right? We're for sure ready to take less than so other people can have more. It's okay that other people have the good stuff and we don't, right? Jacob's not at all like me. Jacob wants the good stuff. And if it's not going to come from God, he's going to grab it himself. And his life would be defined by his name. He's the grabber. And an amazing story. Um, He's named the grabber from birth. Isn't that a bummer of a name? Some of you might not like your name, but how would you like your name to be? Deceiver. Hi, I'm Deceiver here to open a checking account. That'd be a, that's terrible. And the thing is, sometimes we read these stories and go, how did, how did they possibly know that he was going to be a deceiver when he was just a little baby? And if you have that question, it's because you've never had children. <laughs> Babies at six months old have already learned how to lie, and they do it by crying. They cry to say that something's wrong when it's totally not wrong. My kids are advanced, so they learned it earlier. About four months, my kids learn how to lie because they learn from the best, and that was me. Um, Jacob is a deceiver. He will trick you in order to get what he wants because he wants the good stuff, just like you do. And if it's not going to come from God, then he's going to do it himself. He's a grabber. Now, he, uh, this tactic ruins his life. Um, one of the reasons why is because of the family that he's a part of. Uh, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, Father Abraham, the man who God said, I'm going to bless you. Your descendants are going to be like the stars. I am going to treat you with love and grace and generosity. And Jacob is his grandson, and he's learning That if I can't trust God, I'm going to get it myself. I'm going to do it myself. I want the good stuff. And he grabs it. And it's a terrible scene. He learns from his dad that he's not loved. Because his father doesn't love him. He loves his older brother. He loves his brother best. He plays family favorites. That never happens to any of us, right? And what sometimes happens in families, when dads prefer one son to the other, who does the mom choose? She chooses the other one. And so Jacob is mom's favorite, but Esau is dad's favorite. And that family conflict is a disaster. And it all could have been avoided. 
Rebecca, Rebecca could have gone to Isaac and said, Isaac, you, you're not paying attention to Jacob. You don't love him. And Isaac could have said, you're right. Let me make that right. And the whole situation could have been over. Esau could have gone to his dad and said, Dad, you, you should treat my brother better. He, he's my brother. I don't want you treating my brother that way. Come on, Dad, you can do better. That could have happened, and it didn't. And in this dysfunctional family, that wound that Jacob gets of you're not going to get the good stuff unless you get it yourself, it kills this family. And Jacob tricks his brother Esau out of the birthright, cheats his brother to the point that Esau, his brother, wants to kill him. Imagine that. One brother so hurt and angry that he looks at his own flesh and blood and says, I wish you were dead. That never happens to any of us, right? Two brothers part ways, one ready to hate, the other ready to keep deceiving and grabbing. And Jacob leaves the land of his homeland. He goes to another land where he gets married uh, in a really crazy story. You should read it. It's in the book of Genesis. It, it, it'll blow you away. Then he gets rich by cheating his father-in-law out of a bunch of animals in a scheme that makes like Ocean's 13 look like child's play. It's an amazing con job he does. You totally should read it. I don't have time to get all the way into it. And then Jacob finds himself at 100 years old. In his own power, he has grabbed hold of the good stuff that God said that he was going to give him. God said, I'm going to be blessed, so I'm going to grab the things myself. And he ends up with wealth and servants. He ends up with not one wife, but two wives. He ends up with 12 sons who would later become the whole nation of Israel. We're going to get to that in a minute. He's got everything that you think that he would want. Except you ever notice when someone has everything that they want, but they've had to get it by cheating, it doesn't satisfy? Because the thing that Jacob is really trying to grab for, the thing that he really needs, is not the good stuff. He needs that wound to be healed in him. And even after 100 years of going place to place, the place that God calls him is actually backwards. You have to go back to your family. Why does God call him back to his family? Because the wounds that are back there, we just carry with us. Wherever you go, there you are. The circumstances don't change you. And so God calls them back and says, Jacob, you're going to go back to your family. And maybe in some ways that's good news, but in one way it's bad news because back there, there's an enemy, a man that wants to kill me. And after 100 years, Jacob has figured out a way to trick things. So he, he goes home. I don't know about you. I don't think I would have turned around and gone back. But Jacob's fought before. He's had to con his way out of some difficult situations. He can probably get out of this one. He's scared, but he goes. And he goes back to his homeland. And in an amazing scene, his brother Esau, he, he hears that Esau's got 400 men. There's only one reason why a brother that you hate is ready to meet you with 400 dudes. <laughs> You're in trouble. And so Jacob does what Jacob does every time he's in trouble. Jacob does what you can do and what I can do when we're in trouble. He starts trying to make a deal. 
You can see the deal even in his prayer. It's interesting. He prays to God, God, I've headed back to my homeland because this is what you told me to do. You said that you were going to be with me and that you would make things go well with me. The funny thing is if you rewind to what God actually said to him, he did say that he should go back to his homeland and God did promise that he would be with Jacob, but he never said that he would make him prosper and that it would go well. Jacob added that because that's the thing that Jacob always wanted. God, make it go well for me. Make it go well for me. So his brother and 400 men are over on the other side. So he sends, uh, he sends his flocks ahead for like two reasons. One, if 400 dudes want to come kill you and then they have to deal with a million sheep, they're going to be a little bit busy and may not be able to cut your head off. So after he sends the sheep, then he sends a bunch of servants. Now they got animals to manage and they got people to manage. And then an amazing act of courage, Jacob does what all great dads should do, a great husband should do when facing an enemy. He sends the women and children in front. <laughs> nice work, Jacob. He crosses over the river, and when night falls, he's all by himself. And this amazing snapshot, this is a picture of Jacob, not just on this night. This is the way that Jacob has always been. He's always been by himself. He's always been grabbing for what he can have, always willing to do it himself, wanting the good stuff for himself. And now all these blessings and possessions that he has, he's sent them all to his brother, a possible chance that they're all going to get killed or taken. That's not Jacob's problem. Jacob's there at night. Now, I want you to think about this. He sent all that stuff ahead. He knows his brother wants to kill him. He knows there's going to be a fight. But it's a good thing because Jacob's a fighter, right? So that night, night falls. A figure comes, a man, and grabs hold of Jacob and starts fighting him. Who do you think Jacob thinks that man is? This is brother. And the brother that he grabbed hold of with his hands at birth, he grabs hold of that brother again. The only problem is, as he's wrestling all night with him, when the morning comes, he finds out, this isn't my brother at all. His fight wasn't with his brother first. The first person that Jacob fought from the very beginning of his life and the one that he's fighting here on this night, his first struggle is with God. Your first fight in your life, the first wall in your life and in my life is the wall between you and God. And if that one doesn't come down, none of the other ones are coming down either. He wrestles with Esau. He thinks it's Esau. He wrestles with this man. We find out in Scripture, theologians go back and forth. Some folks think this is the early representation of Jesus, God coming in the form of a human being and wrestling with humans. We'll see that again in the story, right? Some people think it's an angel of the Lord. Most people see that like this is God interacting with Jacob. Jacob is wrestling with God, and he's a good wrestler. The story says that, the, that God wrestled with Jacob all night and came to the realization, I'm not going to beat this guy. That's a pretty great wrestler. If God can't beat you, you know you got a problem. But the truth is, God can't beat any of us. If you want to fight God for your whole life, you can. But God will keep fighting with you all night because God's not going to let go of you. He's not going to. Oh, thanks. So Jacob's wrestling with God. God's got a hold of him. 
And Jacob has a hold of God. So just picture this. Jacob has got God in his hands. And this man, representing God, says to Jacob, let me go. And Jacob says, oh, what he's been saying ever since he was little, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And then the angel of the Lord looks at Jacob. And like in one of those movies, I just want to sort of see the camera zoom in on Jacob. The man of God asks Jacob, while he has a hold of him, Jacob, what's your name? And he can just look down at his hands. His, his name is what he's doing. You're the grabber, Jacob. Except this time, he's not grasping for another human being. He's not grabbing for the good stuff. This time, he's been fortunate enough, blessed enough, that the thing that he's grabbed hold of is the only thing that he needs. It's God. And after wrestling with him, he touches his hip. God touches Jacob's hip and makes it go out of socket. He wounds him. Does Jacob let go while his hip is getting broken? No, he's a grabber. You don't understand. <laughs> See, Jacob's first wall was with God. He fought that fight. Later on, he'll name that place Peniel, which means the face of God. It's the place that he saw God face to face. And it makes you wonder, growing up in the family of Abraham, in a church family, 100 years old, Jacob, was this the first time that you ever actually saw God? And what did his face look like? Not the face of an enemy, but the face of love. The love that he couldn't get from his father, the love that he didn't get through 100 years of grabbing, he got in that fight. But there's another thing that he got. He got to see the face of God, but he got a limp. You see, for Jacob, his whole life of grabbing was built on strength. If you don't give me what I want, I will overpower, deceive, grab. I'll get the good stuff, and I'll do it myself. And now, in preparation for Jacob's meeting with Esau, I can only imagine, he's wrestling all night. He thinks it's Esau. It turns out to be God. He sees the face of God. But now the problem is, now Esau is still out there, and he has to go face him. And God gives him the one thing that he needs that he's never had, which is, Jacob, you've always tried to win with strength. I wonder if you could win with vulnerability. And Jacob, his name gets changed. Jacob, you are for sure the one who's the grabber and the grasper, but this time you've grasped onto God, and I'm going to change your name to Israel, which means clings to God. And clinging to God and walking with a limp, his identity gets changed. You see, he's no longer Jacob the Strong. You ever try to fight someone with a broken hip? He's not Jacob the Strong. He does still have strength, but his strength is that he's clinging to God because that's his new name. I'm Israel. And through Israel and those 12 tribes, we are here today because this is our family lineage. Through this man, after 100 years of grabbing, God changed his identity. The wall with himself came down. I will be the one that God wants me to be instead of trying to be the one that I want to be. The first wall is the wall between you and God and me and God. And if that one doesn't come down, none of them will. The second wall is the wall with yourself. And if that doesn't change, reconciliation and tearing down walls with another person will never happen. Jacob, with his broken hip, limps his way to his brother. This 
this wound that God gives him is a blessing. I just want to say a quick thing about that in case this challenges your theology. Does God wound people in order to heal them? I will say in this story, it seems pretty clear that he does. However, that doesn't mean that every single suffering or brokenness that you go through is God-ordained, and so God must have a reason for it. Okay, that's like a, a disclaimer. Does God do this to Jacob to give him what he needs? Yes, he does. He limps to his brother. And the same way that he named that place, Peniel, the place I saw the face of God, he looks at Esau, who used to be his enemy, and he looks him in the face and says, I see the face of God in you. But you can't see the face of God in an enemy until you've seen the face of God. Esau throws his arms around him and kisses him. And there's forgiveness there. But it's taken 100 years for Jacob to be a do-it-yourself kind of a guy. A guy who wrestles for 100 years. It might take another 100 to get the fight still out of him because reconciliation and tearing down walls is a journey. Walls that took 100 years to build up don't fall down instantaneously. Let me put it like this. For the last eight months, I've been fighting and wrestling my own fight against mint chocolate chip ice cream at 11 o'clock at night. That's a hard fight. That's a hard habit to break. Jacob's got 100 years of struggling that he's got to fight. So he tells his brother Esau, go meet me over on that side of the river. And Esau does. He goes and waits for him. Does Jacob go over there? No, he doesn't. He goes to the other side of the river. Those two brothers won't see each other face to face again until their dad dies. Reconciliation is hard. It's a long journey. So how are we supposed to do it? Where is the place that I can walk this journey? This wall between God and I that one day I take two bricks out and the next day I put three more up. How am I supposed to learn about this? Where can I grow? Funny thing is, since God had this thing figured out for us, he invites us together to be part of a body. A body that is made up of many members, and those many members are here for each other. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes, yes you are. This church and the church, it's a training ground. It's a gym for our souls. It's a place where we tear down the walls. And so Jesus, the master teacher, he was working on a project kind of like this. He invited 12 people who were as messed up as you and me, and he got them working together as a pretty good team. And he gave them some real pragmatic instructions about what they should do when there was walls in between them, okay? Now, I just want to review real quick so we don't get sidetracked here. The first wall that has to come down in my life is the wall between God and I. If that one doesn't come down, none of them come down. And you know what? That wall can come down for you today. I'll be down here. Prayer teams will be down here. We would love to talk to you about that. If you've been fighting for the good stuff long enough and you're ready to throw in the towel and say, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way, this could be your day, and we'll be ready for that. The second thing is the wall with yourself. If you can't get back to find out the source of some of those wounds that cause you to, to, to build walls, never going to get anywhere with that. Before we start healing the walls between each other, those are the first two things we have to get right. Now, the third one, the wall between each other. How are we supposed to do this? Jesus gives some real pragmatic advice. Get ready because like Jesus' brilliant teachings all over the Bible, it's going to be really simple and really hard at the same time. Are you ready? 
Are you ready? Yeah. Great. All right, Matthew chapter 18. If another believer sins against you, good news, or just real news, this is going to happen. Do people get hurt in churches through relationships, yes or no? If you are expecting to come to a church where you never get hurt, let me know when you find that church and I'll go with you, okay? If another believer sins against you, log on to Facebook, tag their photo, tell everyone exactly what they did wrong, right? When another believer sins against you, have the courage to do what Jacob did not do and go directly to the person who's hurt you. Man, if you don't do that, if you go sideways, the damage spreads. Go privately and point out the offense. Don't go on Facebook. Don't call your mother. Tell her. Um, go to the person who's done it. Have the courage to confront. Remember this drama up here? Like, these are the kinds of things that happen. People disregard you. They don't listen to you. They don't agree with you. They hurt you. What you do is you go directly to the person. It's super simple and super hard because who's the last person you want to talk to when there's a conflict? The first thing I want to do when someone hurts me, I will build a brick wall of silence and withdrawal that like even Jacob couldn't get through. That's what I want to do. And Jesus looks me square in the eye and says, Seth, when someone hurts you, I want you to go to them. Because, Seth, when you hurt me, I went to you. So do it. Okay, back to Jesus' teachings in Matthew. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back, which is the goal. The tearing down of the wall so the body can be together. God doesn't want the body to be separate. Side note. This teaching, you can totally use this at school. You can totally use this at your work. You can use this in, a, in your family. This doesn't just apply to the church. This is truth. Jesus was the teacher of truth. You can use it everywhere. The second thing I'd say is maybe you're here and you're like, I, I don't feel much like I'm connected to a body. The thing says like, Okay, it makes sense to me that if I have a conflict, I can go to someone, but then if that doesn't work, I'm supposed to go get somebody else, but I don't know anybody else here at church. I don't know that I have another person that I can trust to help me with this. So I just want to say, if that's the way that you're feeling, you can make other relationships and have community here. If you're just coming to the worship service on Sunday and then driving back home, this is going to be a part of the teachings of Jesus that's going to be difficult, if not impossible. You need to be connected to a body in order to do that. And I know that in a lot of ways, we as a church aren't perfect at this. We, we can struggle with this, and you can help with that, okay? It takes a community to practice this. We've been brought together as a body. We can do this. If you're unsuccessful, so like you go to the person. If the person says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't really care, what's, what's the natural thing that you want to do? I want to wash my hands and go, God, I went way out of my way, more than I should have, to reach out for forgiveness. And this person said no. So I guess they're in your hands now. And Jesus says, no, I want you to keep working at it because here's the truth. You and I both know it deeply. If your marriage is in conflict, you know one conversation is not going to fix it. If things between you and your father are broken, one afternoon fishing on the boat is not going to fix it. It's a journey. It takes work. 
more and more. It's something that has to get torn down over time. You have to keep working at it. So if you go to the person and they don't forgive you, you don't have permission to give up. You take someone else with you. Again, not your mother, not your best friend or someone who's, who agrees with you. Someone who can be a neutral party and tell you how wrong you are in the conflict as much as the other person. If that doesn't work, you still don't have permission to quit. It says, take it to the leaders of the church who have wisdom and insight, and they will help you. And the goal of all of these things is because Jesus prayed that his disciples would be one, like the Father, Son, and Spirit. No walls. It's worth the work to do it. FYI, Jesus was so serious about this that when he brought his, uh, his disciples together to take communion... And then later on in the early churches, they did that. They actually had specific instructions like, hey, if communion is coming, it's the meal that we share. It's like a piece of bread and some juice. It's like symbolic. Okay, watch this. It's symbolic that we together are the flesh and the blood of Jesus, all of us together. How silly it would be for you to have bread and a cup to say, God, we're one unified church if you know that you have a fracture between you and another brother. And what the scripture says is like, don't even put that cracker in your mouth, dude. Go to the person who you have something against and work it out. The cracker will be here waiting for you, okay? Next week, we're taking communion as a whole church together. We're going to have a special weekend. Next weekend, remember I said reconciliation is a journey? Reconciliation has been a 25-year journey at this church, and Paul our teaching pastor and Greg are together going to tell you the story of reconciliation around our church, and we're going to finish up that service taking communion. You have a week to reach across a wall between you and someone else in this church and make it right. Do whatever you can to make it right so that next week when we share the meal as one, it's not just us pretending. God will look down and go, that's, that's my body. That's what that looks like. Okay, I want you to stand to your feet. I need to finish up here in 60 seconds. There's one thing Jacob got wrong. One main thing he got wrong. He misunderstood what it meant to be blessed. Jacob thought that God's blessing was about him. The thing he forgot is that the blessing that God gave to Abraham and to his father Isaac and then to him, Jacob, the thing he forgot about was that I'm going to bless you with two super important words that all of us need so that the world will be blessed through you. Does God want to bless you? Yes, absolutely he does. Because God wants to use you to bless the world. Isaiah, the prophet, here's what he says. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family Jacob with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship, and they love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a group of right-living people, law-abiding and God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And they love having me on their side. But they also complain, why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves? You don't even notice. Well, here's why, God says. 
The bottom line on your fast days is profit. It's all about you. You drive your employees too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you fight. You fast and swing a mean fist. If you quit gossiping about other people's sins, if you're generous with the hungry, if you start giving yourself to the down and out, then your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadow lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go, and I will give you a full life in the emptiest of places. Firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. you'll, You'll use the old rubble of past lives. Anyone have any rubble back there? You'll use it to build a new life, to rebuild the foundations out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. You can restore old ruins. You can rebuild and renovate. You can make the community livable again. Does anybody want to live in a community that's livable again? Yeah. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So how is church today? I guess we'll find out tomorrow, right? Blessings. Have a great week. The prayer teams will be up front to pray with you.